0: Chapter 5, as always, previously, you're not going to forget it, my learning style is repetition. Whenever you hear something again and again and again, it'll go in there and it'll stay in there. The first half of Ephesians is all about what God has done for us in Christ It's about a new humanity, a new people that have been created through the power of His cross, through His blood, through the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, we had four messages in chapter 4. We talked about unity. We talked about gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, We talked about how right thinking leads to right living. And then last week was about a change of clothes. Last week was one of the most intensely practical portions of Scripture that you'll ever hear. The the podcast is misbehaving at the minute. I'm just trying to sort that out. I'll I'll put the last few messages into Dropbox and share them on the on the WhatsApp, so you can get at them if you want to. But last week was incredibly intensely practical, real world stuff. Let me read from Ephesians chapter five, and I'm going to read from verse five to verse seventeen. And then i'll take a few more verses a bit later this is the most important thing that'll happen in the next 30 minutes all right this is god's word this is god's word afterwards there's a lot of my stumbling attempts to try to explain it but this is god's word so give it all you've got here ephesians chapter 5 not an ideal place to break between messages but you've got to break somewhere paul has a habit of going on with long long sentences and you have to choose somewhere to say, listen, mate, people can't take that all at once. We need to split it in two. So we're going from verse 5 of chapter 5. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Let's just read on. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm going to go reasonably quickly through the, the first sort of two-thirds or three-quarters of that, and then I'm going to slow it away, way down at the end. First thing I want you to note is that this is serious. This is serious. And Paul uses language that really emphasizes the fact that it's serious because one, one of the things we can very easily do in Ephesians is the way I, I was thinking about it yesterday, is like sitting in the theatre and watching a stunning performance on the stage. And the spotlight is on this person on the stage doing their thing and you're sitting, you know, maybe somewhere in the middle of the audience and you're watching and you're taken in by this incredible performance. And that's like the first three chapters of Ephesians. You're just sitting watching what God has done and you're amazed. Just when you watch an incredible artist or performer doing the thing and you're just sitting mesmerized. That's, that's what happens in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And, and just as you're about to sort of break into applause and maybe stand and leave, the spotlight then starts to shift away from the stage and onto me <laughs> or onto you. And all of a sudden, Ephesians moves from being something that we are watching what God has done to very, very practical, what are we going to do? How are we going to live in light of the performance that we've just seen? How are our lives going to then be? And this practical preaching that we had last week and we're having again this week, it's not comfortable, right? It's not. It's absolutely right down into the nitty gritty of the real world. It's easy to listen to great eloquent sermons about what God has done. It's much more difficult when it really starts to hit here and it's much more difficult to actually preach it as well. Believe me. Last week, Paul majored on putting away old patterns of behavior about speech, about anger, about money, about crude talk and about lust, about putting those things away. And just in case anybody would read the last part of chapter 4 that we covered last week and then quickly move on without actually taking seriously what's been said, just look at the language that Paul begins to use in chapter 5. In verse 5, he says, of this you can be sure. He's just using words that cause us to realize the gravity of things. Of this you can be sure. In verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. In verse 11, he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless works of darkness. And in verse 15, be very careful how you live. We'll see some of those verses again as we go through. But do you see the emphatic nature of the language? Because sometimes we kid ourselves that the sort of life that God calls us to, it isn't really that important. Our speech Well, it's okay, God knows and he's he's gracious and he forgives us when we get loose with our speech and God knows and and whenever we're we're sort of dishonest about our money, it's okay, he understands and all sorts of other things that we, we sometimes adopt this attitude because we hear the empty words of the world around us and we sometimes think, well, it's not really that big a deal. Very easy to think that, very easy to tolerate things in our lives. Deep inside, we know this grieves God. This grieves the Holy Spirit, as we read about last week. But we, we sort of gloss over it and say, well, it's all right. I'm only human. I'm only human. I some, I'm trying to remove that phrase from my vocabulary. I'm only human. <laughs> I'm not only human. I'm filled with the Spirit. And I should be behaving in a way that honors God. So these things are a big deal. And regardless of what culture tells us, we should take them seriously and put them off, as as Paul told us in the previous passage. He talks about transformation in verses 8 and following. He says, once you were darkness, but now you are light. He doesn't just say once you were in the dark. He says once you were dark, you were actually darkness yourself but now you are light and this is something this theme of transformation we started way way back a long time ago i don't know how long ago 3 or 4 years ago when we started ephesians like way way back at the start with a message in Acts chapter 19 about how ephesians was about transformation and all through the book we read of transformation we read last week of putting off the old putting on the new and now he says you were once darkness you were darkness but now you're light transformation has taken place You are not what you were. And this is something that's a theme not just through Ephesians and the story of of Ephesus itself, but you go right back to the very start of the Bible and the very first thing that God says is let there be light. He doesn't like darkness. He doesn't like darkness. Darkness is where people hide to do things that they should not be doing. Let's wait until after dark. (laughs) Darkness is where sin takes place. Darkness is where things are covered and hidden, not from the eyes of God, but from the eyes of others. And God does not like darkness. So very first thing you see him doing is, let's get the lights on. Let there be light. And John, as he describes uh, Jesus in, uh, in John chapter one, talks about the light shining in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Not that you're in the light, that you're enjoying the light, but you are the light. You are the light. Let that hit you. Let that rest with you. And don't be modest about it and say, well, I'm not really. Maybe the Christian beside me is. Maybe someone who's been walking with God for another 10 years longer than I have. Maybe they are the light. No, let it be on you. The moment you got born again, you are light. You are light. Let that be something that that brings a sense of responsibility, but also let it bring incredible privilege. That Jesus says to you, you're light. From day one, you are light. Go and shine. Don't be hidden. Shine for him. So he talks about transformation, and then he goes on to say about our thinking again. And we saw this and we've seen it previously in the letter. That's where we're going quite quickly here. He says in verse 10, to find out what pleases the Lord. And that word for find out means to analyze, to scrutinize, to examine. Sometimes the kids come home with a homework and it says research something. That means Google. Google always Google. I hate Google homeworks. You know when you try as a parent to limit screen time and then they come home with a Google homework and they have to go online and spend ages faffing about in front of the the evil blue light of the screen. Um, But this is is what the word, it literally I think is the word from which we get the word document. Study, research, dig in, find out what pleases God in Ephesians 5.10. That for me speaks of study. It for me speaks of the word of God. That we don't find ourselves in a situation thinking, oh goodness me, look look now, I don't know what to do in this situation. But that we have a life of constantly seeking him, seeking him through his word, studying his word, even when we feel we don't maybe need to. We always need to because we'll come up against things in life and we need to know what pleases God. We need to have already found that out, studied it, dug into it and got it into our hearts. So when we face circumstances, we know what it is we should do, we're to think about what pleases him. We're to expose the darkness," Paul says in Ephesians 5:11. "Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them." Now, that does not mean that we gossip. And it does not mean that we sort of publicly every Sunday morning stand up and announce all the bad things that somebody did during the week. That's not exposing the works of darkness. But I think what it does mean is that we have a responsibility to one another in private to call each other out. And in love, that should be something that we can do. If we don't have relationships where that is a safe thing to do, there's a problem. But in private, as we share and as we're open and honest with each other, we should be able to call each other out, encourage each other about our lives and to overcome sin and to put things to death that grieve God. Ezekiel uh, writes in, in Ezekiel 33, this is God speaking to Ezekiel and he says, You son of man are a watchman. Now, in the ancient world, a watchman did not sleep at night. He stayed on the city walls, and he watched the surrounding territory, looking to see if there was danger coming. And if he saw danger, his job was to start screaming and yelling and waking everybody up and getting everybody ready to defend the city. And God says to Ezekiel, you're the watchman. I've made you a watchman for Israel. The minute you hear a message from me, warn them. If I say to the wicked, wicked man, wicked woman, you're on the fast track to death and you don't speak up and warn the wicked to change their ways, the wicked will die unwarned in their sins and I'll hold you responsible for their bloodshed. So if we love one another and in relationship with one another, we don't, it's not about being the moral police. It's not about nitpicking and and, and invasively poking into somebody's life. But if we're not able to actually just say to each other, listen, I love you. I hope you trust me. I hope you see my heart in this. I think this pattern of behavior is going to lead you in a wrong direction. (laughs) If we can't do that, there's something wrong. I think that's what Paul means by exposing darkness. I don't think it's a public thing. I don't think it's a it's an ugly thing. I think it's done in encouragement. It's done in in safety. It's done in trust, and it's done in love. And if you don't challenge people, and this applies to everyone, don't be thinking that I you know I'm just going to randomly challenge everyone. I could challenge too. I have people that I go to, and you know some of them, and some of them you maybe don't know, but I have three or four people who are who are sort of act as as mentors to me. And believe you me, it's not always cozy and comfortable when we go to Starbucks. You know, there are times you go and you're thinking, why I'm feeling rough and I could do with some encouragement, and then you just get slapped with something mid-conversation and you're like, flip sake, I drove up here to be encouraged and you've just hit me with that. But we need it, we need it. If a child is walking towards danger, you don't just let them keep walking. I can't remember, it crossed my mind earlier, and I can't remember the specific occasion, but sometime in the past year, one of the kids was doing something, and whatever they were doing, if they had done it for about another five seconds, they were going to get hurt, and I shouted, stop, you know, because there needed to be an urgent stop in whatever it was they were doing. And there were tears, you know, Daddy, why did you shout? I had to shout, I had to make sure that you heard me, and that you did, you know the way as a parent sometimes you say something in a normal tone? And nobody hears for some reason. And uh, it was just the situation we were in. I just, I had to shout, I had to raise my voice and then there were tears and there were hugs. And why did you shout? I had to make you stop immediately because you were going to get hurt. And as we are together, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be able to sometimes in love, in privacy, in grace, shout into each other's lives and draw our attention to things that are going to do us harm. The King James Version then uses this wonderful old word, walk <coughs> circumspectly. Boys, oh, circumspectly. In my Bible, it says, be very careful then how you live. <clears throat> and there are occasions, believe it or not, where the King James just trumps every other Bible version. It can be hard work sometimes and old no language, but there are moments where you're just like, that's nailed it and nothing else can better it. Walk circumspectly. What the word literally means is, haven't got it there, but it means accurately. Whenever I went to school in Edenderry in Portadown, um, sometimes, out, I can remember out around the school and some, some of the housing estates around there, uh, people didn't want folk climbing over their walls. And what they did was, brutal. You don't say it that much now, but I'm sure people maybe still do it. But on the top of the wall, they would go along and they put a, a sort of a thick layer of, of cement along the top of the wall. And then what would they shove into the cement? Oh, Broken awesome. glass. <laughs> Welcome to Portadown. <laughs> you know? And <clears throat> have you ever watched a cat walk along one of the tops of those walls? I think that's one of the best sort of pictures of walking circumspect. A cat will just pick every step and be able to walk along the top of that wall, no problem at all, without any cuts and and won't even hardly pause, but will just be able to navigate through all those sharp dangers. And that's what Paul means. And it's really badly translated in modern modern translations because the word walk isn't even there. It's just be very careful how you live. It's walk. Be very careful how you walk. Pick every step. There are many things in this world that will do you harm, that will cut your feet, spiritually speaking. And you've got to pick every step. The word walk has come up again and again and again since that swing in Ephesians from the first three chapters to the last three chapters. This word has appeared. Right from verse 1 of chapter 4, walk worthy of the calling you've received. That's when the spotlight moved from the stage in the theater round to your seat and my seat. You've seen the performance, now walk worthy of it. In verse 17, it's there again, don't walk as the Gentiles do. In verse 2 of chapter 5, walk in love. It says in my Bible, live a life of love, but it literally says walk in love. Tim mentioned love earlier. Walk in love. In verse 8 of chapter 5, walk as children of light. And then our verse, walk circumspectly. That idea of just carefully navigating life. And two things are said of those who walk circumspectly. One, they redeem the time. Another great old phrase. What it means is they make the most of every opportunity. It's the Greek word kairos. There are two Greek words for time. I'm sure you know this if you've been around church and and Bible for any length of time. There's kairos and there's kronos. Kronos means minutes and seconds. Kairos means moments of opportunity. You know those moments where you just feel Jesus has opened a door for you. In a conversation, in prayer, in giving and being generous to someone, whatever it may be those moments of opportunity. That's what Paul is talking about here. People who are walking carefully through life will not miss an opportunity. Now, you can misunderstand this, I think, because of this phrase, redeeming the time, you can then become a slave to the clock, where if you sit and do nothing for 15 minutes, suddenly you are drowning in guilt. (laughs) I have not been productive for 15 minutes. Woe is me. I've just sat with a mug of tea and gazed out the window at the beauty of creation. I haven't done anything. Don't be a slave to that sort of thinking. God created us to enjoy the beauty of creation and one another and this world and all the flavors and smells and sights and everything in it. Uh, we, we buried a, a friend of ours in, in September, a guy called Derek. Who, um, who was a Bible teacher and an encourager and just a great man. And I remember Derek saying to me one time about oh maybe 15 years ago, he said, people have lost the art of just wasting 10 minutes, of just stopping and not feeling the pressure to do something. So that's not what this verse means. This verse does not mean, redeeming the time does not mean, oh goodness, look back, look at the day. Oh, there were 45 minutes in total during this day that I was unproductive. That's not what it means. It means people who are navigating through the glass carefully spot opportunities and take them and don't miss them. You know, God has given each of us a calling. It is so sad when you see someone who has been gifted Someone who has obviously got a calling to maybe reach a certain group of people or or a certain person, and because of sin and selfishness and whatever, they, they nullify that, and they don't actually do it. They miss the opportunity. They're not redeeming the time because they're not walking carefully through life, and when an opportunity arises, they're so caught up in their own selfishness that they miss it. And the second thing that Paul says about people who walk circumspectly, they understand what the Lord's will is. And this again is going back to, I think, to to verse 10. Find out what pleases the Lord. A life of studying the scriptures, a life of just knowing what God wants. I want to tell you what God's will for your life is. His will for your life is that you would be like Jesus. His will for your life is that you would love God and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. His will for your life is that you would honor him. His will for your life is that you would be part of the local church. That's his will for your life. His will for your life is that you would abstain from immorality. That's his will for your life. And sometimes we can get so caught up on, does God want me to have a job here or here? And sometimes he will give very direct instruction as to whether he wants you to be in a job here or here. But sometimes he will just let you choose and his will will be, wherever you are, honor me. Wherever you are. Now, now, that does not mean sometimes he won't just say very clearly, I want you there. But I believe sometimes he'll just say, I'm going to give you the freedom to choose. But wherever you go, my will for you is that you honor me. And how you work and how you love people, that's my will for you. And wise people who are walking carefully through this world know what the will of God is. Now, wise people are also under the influence all the time. <laughs> the word under the influence is to do with drinking wine, too much wine specifically. Let me read verses 18 to 21. And this is the last portion that I'm covering today, and we're just going to slow it down a little bit here. Do not get drunk on wine. Now, please, that does not mean it's okay to get drunk on whiskey or beer or anything else. All right. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now I'm going to make a slight change in my translation here, and I, I assure you it is the correct thing to do. The NIV here and most Bibles have broken this up into individual sentences. It is one sentence. 18 to 21 is one sentence. I want you to listen carefully. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You might not think there have been many changes there. If you read that in the English, it looks like there are lots of different commands. It looks like there's a command to be filled with the Spirit. And a command then to speak to one another, and a command to sing, and a command to give thanks, and a command to submit. There's not. There's only one command in this passage. One command. And the way this is originally written, the only command is to be filled with the Spirit. Everything, now listen to me church, everything after that is what happens when you are filled with the Spirit. It's not like, here's here's one command. Command number one, be filled with the Spirit. Command number two, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. No, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. Be filled with the Spirit, and then there will be this outcome, and that outcome, and another outcome. We're going to look at the outcomes, but I want you to get the point is, you can't just take verse 18 and separate it from verses 19 to 21. In fact, you cannot separate it from the rest of the book. We have to stop after verse 21, but you know what happens immediately afterwards? We read about wives and husbands, because spirit-filled living works itself out in marriage. We then read about uh, parents and children, because spirit-filled living works itself out in family relationships. We then read about slaves and masters, because spirit-filled living works itself out in the workplace. It all flows from this one command in verse 18. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Everything else is overflow. The command to be obeyed is to be filled with the Spirit. Everything else is the outcome of that. Do you understand? It's not like you can pick a command in verse 19 and say, well, I'll take that. No, no. If someone has drunk too much wine, there are you can't they can't hide it. They try to hide it and it's quite funny the polo mints come out and, and you can see them trying really hard to walk in a straight line. But if someone has drunk too much wine, their speech is different. It's starting to slur a little bit. They can't walk in a straight line. Their judgment becomes unreliable. They forget. And they regret decisions that they make under the influence. The introvert becomes an extrovert. It's sad, but also a tiny bit funny at the same time. Um, now and again, in, in school, kids will come to me and say, Sir, you'll never believe what happened last night. And I say, what happened last night? I say, such and such was uh, at uh, an establishment that sells alcohol for the first time. And you're like, that wee quiet boy that's been sitting in my, three, my room three years and never opened his mouth. Yes, him! i like, okay, what happened? You want to have seen him on the dance floor, Sarah? It was amazing! <laughs> Suddenly the little quiet introvert just becomes this you know, complete explosion of inhibition. Um, or loss of inhibition. Alcohol does that to people. If you're under the influence, you start to act very differently. Moral people become immoral people. There is an influence to be avoided. And likewise, there is an influence to be welcomed. And like Paul never knew how this would translate into English, but it is mildly funny when he says, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with spirit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but again, don't—not not the intention. Um, there is an influence that we need to be under. There is something that we need to be filled with. Paul talks about drinking of the spirit. Drinking of the Spirit. And the results of being filled with the Spirit are completely different. Be, don't, don't be drunk with wine because that leads to debauchery and stupidity and bad decisions and embarrassing yourself. But be filled with the Spirit and let's now look at what that leads to. Spirit-filled people sing. All right? May not sing well, but they sing. And I want to look at two types of of the the singing that, that Paul mentions. He says they sing to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs or songs from the Spirit. Some of our songs are sung to one another. Listen as we sing. Some of the words that we sing, we're actually singing to each other and we're encouraging one another as we sing. Some of the songs we sing are directly sang to God, to Jesus, and there's a mixture of both. And then... there are spiritual songs as well. Not sure what that is, but verse 14 might have been one of them. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul, Paul says, that's a quote from somewhere, but it's not really clearly in the Old Testament. And there's a good chance it might have been a spiritual song from the first century church. Wouldn't you love to have heard them sing? Wouldn't you love to have heard them sing? And know what it was like. So we have all this mixture in our music, psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, little short songs that we just get tore into, big, long, weighty songs with lots of thought going into them and lots of truth crammed into them. There's a a whole wide variety of how we sing, but Spirit-filled people sing (laughs) instinctively. When they're together, it's like, somebody please lift the guitar and let's sing. And they enjoy it, singing and praising God. It's part of the overflow. It's not, oh, here we have to sing another song. It's the overflow of being filled with the Spirit. That's the way it works itself out. Singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Some of our songs directed at each other in verse 19 that we are speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then onwards towards the end of the verse, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. To the Lord. So there are different directions in which our singing goes. That phrase, "From your heart or in your heart." John Stott says I don't think he meant to be funny, but I laughed He says, "This is an instruction from which unmusical people unable to sing in tune have always derived much comfort. <laughs> making music in your heart to the Lord." You know, it's not about your ability. It's got nothing to do with how much tunage you have in you. And how you express your worship is is entirely up to you. I don't care whether the hands go up or go down. I don't care whether the voice is loud or the voice is quiet. I don't care whether the eyes are opened or closed. I don't care whether the feet are shuffling about or they're standing still. That's not important. Only you and the Lord know if it's coming from the heart. And don't let anyone judge you on whether your, your, your worship is quiet and reserved or whether it is exuberant and passionate. Don't let anyone judge you. It takes all sorts. I once watched a Native American Indian worshipping. And he had the feathers, the big headdress on. And I mean, he just... Do you remember? you there? No? He, you were there? Yeah? No? He walked around the church... And I can, he didn't go up and just stand and sing. I mean he he and he he walked he walked like Drake. You know the way Drake walks? Yeah, some of you have no idea who Drake is, but he walks really funny. Um he walked he literally just walked around the church shouting and cauing and yelling and he was shaking a thing and this full-on feather headdress the whole way down his back, that's how he worshipped. Do you want to try that? Would you be comfortable with that if we brought the headdresses next week? <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Um do you think if we all, if we took our style of worship and tried to impose it on an African tribe, that they would be comfortable with it, or, or vice versa? Oh, folks, don't let's not let's not pigeonhole and just say here, here's the way that we do this. Because all over the world, the diversity of humanity will express their heartfelt praise to the Lord in many different ways. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. But the sight of an Indian walking around a church, giving it stacks, is a rare thing. Believe you me. David danced before the ark with all his might. Love to have seen it. Spirit filled people sing. God sings. Jesus sings. The night that he was betrayed, the night that he was just te- being taken to his trial, or about, about to be taken to his trial, he sang a hymn with the disciples. Wow. Wonder what they sang. Probably one of the Psalms. But he's, he sang. God sings. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse in Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Wow. Big God. Mighty warrior. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The mighty warrior sings over his people. That's beautiful. We have a God who sings. And when we're filled with the Spirit of God, who is God, <laughs> we will sing too. Thong, songs stick in your head and, and you find yourself... Oh, my clicker stopped. Um, you find memories associated with songs. As you sing things... I'm looking for number 20. There it is. That's it. Thank you. As you sing things, they will get the lodge within you. Put on a song last night at home, which I used to wheel the children around the kitchen in the pram trying to get them to sleep. And I would put on this Josh Ritter song called Monster Ballads. And as soon as I put it on, I almost started to cry. All these memories coming back. Songs do that. And our spiritual songs, the things that we sing in church, they get inside of us and stir up memories within us. Every time there is a move of the Spirit in history, new songs are written. Charles Wesley. Do you know Charles? Charles Wesley. Six and a half thousand songs and hymns. Wow. When there's a move of the Spirit, new songs are written. And I think it's wonderful in the church today that there are new songs. Many new songs being written for the church. When there's a move of the Spirit, new songs are written. Here's a really old one. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Listen to this. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Do you hear the music? You know how that maybe translates into that second half of that verse? Translates, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. That's maybe a 21st century version of that thought. Do you hear the music? In the middle of the storm, in the middle of the tumult and the strife, can you hear the strains of the music and join in with the melody? Because that's what spirit-filled people do. There's a beautiful picture in in C.S. Lewis's first book of the Narnia series, The Magician's Nephew, where Aslan, the God character, is creating and the children get to see creation taking place. And what he does is he just walks about singing. And as Aslan, this great lion, just walks around singing, creation just happens all around them beautiful. So Spirit-filled people sing. Second thing that we see in in these verses, which again is is all running on from verse 14, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 20, always giving thanks. Spirit-filled people are thankful. A grumbling mindset is not compatible with being Spirit-filled. If you find yourself grumbling, and I sometimes do, plenty of time (laughs) do. If you find yourself grumbling and complaining, there's a good chance you've leaked. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because a grumbling, complaining mindset is not compatible with him. What the people of Israel did in in the wilderness was they gurned and they moaned at Moses and at God all the time. But a person who is filled with the Spirit will be marked with thanksgiving. I love hearing people pray. And I love it when I hear the words, thank you, thank you, thank you, over and over again. Because someone who's filled with the Spirit instinctively gives thanks to God. Listen to people pray. And they don't need to have something good that happened during the day to give thanks for. It's not like they look back over the day and "Mm, everything was bad. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love thank you for Jesus, thank you for salvation, thank you for your Holy Spirit within me, thank you for the body of Christ for the church. Spirit-filled people give thanks. Please do not misunderstand the verse that people give thanks for evil. They don't. It does not mean that when a bad thing happens, you give thanks for the bad thing that just happened. That's just silly. You give thanks to a God who is faithful and can cause all things to work together for good. So always giving thanks does not mean you get bad news and turn around and say, well, oh, thank you, God, for this awful news I've just got. That's not what it means. That's foolish. Paul wrote in, in Romans 1, he said that, that the beginning of rebellion happened whenever those who knew God didn't glorify him and didn't give thanks to him. Alarm bells ringing all over the place whenever thankfulness becomes absent in the life of a believer. There's something wrong. Spirit-filled people give thanks. And Spirit-filled people, again, people will miss this because of paragraph breaks and full stops and all sorts of things. In verse 21, let me just read from 18 and then jump to 21. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another. It's not two separate commands. It's one command and one evidence that it's actually happened. Submitting to one another. Have you ever watched two Christians try to go through a door? After you, no you first. No you, you. Takes about twenty minutes, and there's a queue of people behind them trying to get in. Don't take it to extremes, but we always look to others before ourselves. In the church, in society, in family. Jesus said to the disciples, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, authority, commands." and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Spirit-filled people submit to others, give their lives for others, serve others, wash feet. Spirit-filled people don't look after their own needs. In in Philippians 2, a good translation, not looking to your own interests. It used to be the old NIV, I think, said not looking only to your own interests. And then they got it right when they redid it a few years ago. Not looking to your own interests at all. (laughs) Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to your interests of others. That's what it means to be Spirit-filled. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. We have all these ideas, you know, to be spirit-filled means we can do this and we can do that and we can do the other thing. No, hang on. If you don't submit to others and look to their own interests ahead of your own, you're not spirit-filled. I'm not spirit-filled. When I'm selfish and just looking after myself and nobody else, I'm not spirit-filled. I'm not honoring him and I'm not living in a way that he's empowered me to live. We complicate things. We complicate things we put expectations on people and we say, well, if you're spirit-filled, you should be able to do this thing. No, hang on. Let's just make it much more simple. If you're spirit-filled, you live like that. In your marriage, in your family, in your home, in your workplace, wherever it may be. So spirit-filled people, three things that we see in the passage. They sing, they give thanks, and they submit to one another. It's not optional, folks. There is no non-spirit-filled Christian life. <laughs> it's just a it's a complete impossibility right? it's an oxymoron you can't do it if you try to do it you will very soon crash and burn and and the problem with being spirit-filled is and some of the language that we use in the church is, is people will say well i was filled with the spirit 15 years ago well that's great but you leak you leak what paul says here is be continually being filled so that you overflow because you leak. And whenever we live a life like this, everything we do is overflow. It's not work, it's not effort, it's not striving, it's overflow. Ministry is overflow. Loving people is overflow. But you've got to be continually filled. Don't look back to one thing that happened a long time ago and say, oh, I was filled with the Spirit. That's great, what about now? We need to be continually filled. And the picture that Paul has in mind is the same one he has at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 where he talks about the temple and talks about God's glory coming and filling it. Looking back to Exodus, we are temples and we're to be filled with the glory of God. Are you filled with the Spirit? If you're a Christian, of course you are. But are you continually filled with the Spirit? And is it working itself out in these very, very simple things in your life? I don't care if you speak in tongues. If you don't submit to one another, it means nothing. I don't care if you can prophesy. If you're not a thankful person, it means nothing. And if somebody knows that you're a grumbling, complaining person, they're not going to listen to your prophetic words. (laughs) Okay? Let's get the simple things right. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you've empowered us and you've transformed us and you've given us all that we need to live the sort of life you want us to live. Lord, I ask that there be a yearning and a hunger within us to be continually filled, to never be satisfied, to never think that's it, I've got enough, but to always want more, Father, because the more we get, the more we will overflow to others and bless them with the life with which you have blessed us. Lord, help us to get these simple things right and not to overcomplicate them, Lord. We want to overflow into the lives of those that we live with, those that we work with, those that we serve God with. And Lord, I ask for each of us this morning that there will be a fresh filling, a fresh filling in the name of Jesus. Amen.